BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. That actually is my question. So in terms of the intro, so we'll be me leading. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our show. Is that the idea? Jail's got the voice. We got to lead with the voice. Coming for you, Joe Rogan. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome to our show, Is It Serious?, a conversational podcast where we share our doctor knowledge without all the complex doctor speak. I'm Dr. Mark Lewis, and I'm a medical oncologist based in Salt Lake City, where I treat cancers of the gut. I'm also a patient myself living with a hereditary tumor syndrome, so I think about healthcare from both sides of the exam table. And I'm Jean-Luc Neptune, MD. My friends call me JL. And I'm an internal medicine physician based in New York City, where I practice addiction medicine at my company, Suntra Modern Recovery. I'm also a health technology and startup investing expert, and I'm passionate about making our healthcare system better for everyone. Before we get started today, we wanted to let you know about another great show from Oscript Health called The Cycle. Melissa Boudreau hosts and she talks with people from all over the world who share their stories about their experience with endometriosis. Her guests also share alternative options like acupuncture, and one episode features a new technology for period comfort, a more discreet, wireless, long-lasting heating pad geared specifically to ease menstrual pain. And she also covers something that we talk about a lot, how to be your own best health advocate. So check out The Cycle, especially if you or someone you know suffers from endometriosis. You can find The Cycle podcast right here on our very own Offscript Health Network. We'll share the link in our show notes. Hey, JL, how's it going, man? I am great, Mark. How are you? It's uh, it's snowed here in New York. What what, what are things like in uh, Salt Lake? It's actually snowing here as well. My family is out skiing uh, right now, but I got to be honest, I don't have any problems being here with you podcasting. I'm super excited by today's question. I'm a little bit nervous we'll get canceled, but that's part <laughs> of what makes it exciting. So I think we should get to it, man. You know, today's question is a very thorny loaded issue. We are uh, tackling, can you be fat and healthy? And even those words coming out of my mouth makes me a little nervous. And I hope by the end of this, people realize we're going to try to address this with appropriate sensitivity. All right. We're going to do our best. And full disclosure, we have to admit, you can't see us on the podcast, but we are two skinny dudes. I was skinny, <laughs> I was skinny my whole life. I've sort of filled out a little bit as I've gotten older. I did sports in college, so that sort of helped me fill out a bit. But my identity has always been skinny. So I understand that we need to think about that as we talk about this subject. But the interesting thing is just because we're skinny doesn't mean that we're healthy. That's right. To be very honest, you know, I've got those Caribbean genes. You know, my family comes from the Caribbean. Uh, and that, when you're from that area, anything you do is going to give you diabetes or hypertension. So that's something <laughs> I always have to be on the lookout for. But as doctors, you know, I think that we are very focused on not so much whether you're skinny or you're fat, but what is your overall health? Because there are so many other issues that can play a role, right? Yeah, man. And I'm from a different island. I'm from uh, Scotland. And we have the second worst rate of cardiovascular disease per capita of any nation on earth. And, and I didn't right. know that. Yeah. And I know this is bad radio. You're right. We're both thin. 
but that absolutely does not necessarily translate into guaranteed good health. And we'll talk about those correlates or the lack thereof today. What I find really interesting, JL, maybe you've had this experience too, is that thin or underweight people, and there have been times in my life where I've been drastically underweight, and we'll get to that, they're actually rarely questioned about their health. But the, the converse is not true. And I think the assumption is that if someone is overweight, they must be unhealthy. And I just think this is unfair. I think there is, uh, as with anything, a spectrum where many people, of course, occupy uh, the middle. And, and the norm is not necessarily uh, a bad thing. I think it's actually the extremes that we need to at least consider. Uh, and even then also realize this is not entirely volitional. I think so much of the, the reason that this is a, a hot topic, a difficult topic, is people feel mm-hmm. as if this is entirely uh, under their control. And, you know, one of the great tensions in, in American healthcare is the constant push and pull of individual responsibility versus public health. And I think this is going to be somewhere in the middle of that. And, uh, you know, look, I think, you know, uh, in our culture, there's a lot of focus on people being overweight and not understanding what that means or what the full implications of that are. And again, as you said, like a lot of uh, tendency to ignore being underweight and sometimes maybe even celebrating being underweight in a way that's not healthy. So I think today what we're going to try to focus on is having a discussion that is well-rounded, pun intended, and hopefully (laughs) educational at the same time. I see what you did there. Um, so, so even before the pandemic, a lot of people actually used the word epidemic to describe obesity in the United States. And so it is worth addressing the question, I think, can you be fat and healthy? Uh, but maybe the better question actually is, well, what does healthy look like when it comes to body mass and body composition? I, I, again, going back to what you were saying before, it's 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 challenging to talk about this. We get nervous talking about it because this topic of your body weight, you know, obesity, those things are all very culturally loaded, particularly for us as Americans. Also, I think, you know, we have to talk about the fact that as men, we perceive this differently, right? We have a culture that places different value on being overweight as a man or as a woman. And as guys, you know, you can get away with sometimes being a little uh, heavier. And, you know, if you look at the research, Americans have very strong notions of obesity and being overweight. There are many studies that show that prejudice against people who are perceived as being overweight is very strong. And what's also interesting is that there are similar studies that show that this anti-overweight prejudice is acceptable in a way that other types of of prejudice are not acceptable or at least fashionable these days, you know? So even the word fat in quotes can bring up a lot of different feelings. So it is a really challenging subject to talk about. Yeah, I think those uh, air quotes, which of course our audience can't see, <laughs> just have to imagine, like they're kind of key because, you know, one of the really issues of this of this episode is, you know, is it okay to say fat? It is after all a part of the body. It's one that we can neuter pretty quickly in doctor speak by by saying adipose tissue. That's how I was taught uh, to refer to it. Uh, but you know that's, that's that's already getting into jargon, and frankly, it's dodging the issue. And, and you talk about a word that's been stigmatized. I will say, I think some people are claiming it and owning it and not considering it to be an epithet. They're considering it to be a part of them. Um, but others are very very offended by it. In fact. You know, I just realized recently that that you and I in our practices, both of us actually administer injections. And it actually comes up not infrequently. I actually have to talk to my patient about their body composition because some of the injections I give actually have to go into fats. Some have Mm -hmm. to go into muscle. And so this this comes up. It's just it's part of taking care of someone. But I can't tell you how much we kind of have to um, tiptoe around it. And 
you know, also in my cancer clinic, I feel such a tension around nutrition. I feel it as the oncologist. I feel it for my patients because really this is what it boils down to. Loved ones want to nourish the patients. It's it's perhaps one of the most natural instincts, right? Someone's sick, you make them yep. chicken soup. And just you know, take that scenario and sort of you know elastize it and stretch it out into a chronic illness. Like this whole nutrition issue comes up a lot as a means of support. But at the same time, uh, I see two reasons actually my patients don't want to eat. One is, you know, they, they feel nauseous or some chemical, you know, physiologic signal is telling them not to eat. The other is, and this is horrible, there's this shame admitted or unsaid that, well, gosh, did my diet lead to cancer in the first place? So I can't uh, begin to tell you. And that's an awful thing, right? Like just how complicated this whole issue issue of, of diet and, and potentially obesity is when we talk about cancer, let alone, you know, just the American medical landscape. Yeah. And, you know, and the interesting thing is sort of to provide a, uh, a different perspective on that. You know, I trained uh, at Columbia, which is in Washington Heights. We had a large uh, Latino population. Many of the people there were from the Dominican Republic. And one thing that we clearly saw when we were training, uh, especially on the PEED service, was that in that community, the fat kid was perceived as being a healthy kid, like parents were overfeeding their children, you know? And that was the, that was the thing that you did because you loved your child. You fed them well and you made sure they ate. And, you know, you'd see a kid would come in who is, you know, by all definitions, obese, but that kid was like a happy kid. He was well taken care of. He was well loved. And you had to explain to the parent, like, hey, this kid, you know, is bigger than he needs to be or is heavier than he needs to be. So it's interesting to see these cultural differences and how how different you perceive being overweight or obese, depending on the situation you're in. It's fascinating to how norms change. And that's, that's really interesting insight into that particular sort of culture in the not too distant past. Uh, being at least somewhat overweight was a sign that you had access to food. It was, Absolutely. It was like a status symbol, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's 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 a fascinating sort of line that we walk between you know having enough, uh, but not too much. And I guess my my counterpoint actually is I've never gotten more compliments uh, on my appearance than when I lost twenty five pounds after pancreas surgery. Um, oh my goodness! I, it was crazy, man. You know, I was never that heavy to start with, but people would be like, "Man, you look great." What's your secret? <laughs> and I was like, well, you're not going to like this answer. <laughs> because when, when they took out half my pancreas, what happened is my adjacent stomach stopped working. And I was literally fed through an IV line for over uh -huh. a month. And the fact that that wow. triggered people to be like, hey, I really want to know how you're doing this. Um, it really opened my eyes into just how much we value slash overvalue thinness. Uh, uh -huh. And again, there is not necessarily an equal sign between being thin and being healthy. And I felt that firsthand. Uh, I'll give you I give you another story. Um, when I uh, in a previous life, I used to do a lot of business in India. I used to have a, a, biz, a team of people working for me in India. And part of the experience of going to India was going to this, you know, the their, their version of Fifth Avenue. Uh, this was in New Delhi and getting a suit measured and, uh, you know, getting a custom fit suit. And I remember at this place, you know, the the in India, they didn't really have this culture of exercising at this point. This is 15 years ago. I think it's probably changed. But the successful Indian man who might shop at that store typically had uh, abdominal obesity. So he was a big around the middle and, mm -hmm. you know, didn't have so much in terms of the shoulders and, you know, and he wasn't that muscular. And it's just so funny to go to a place and you're getting measured for a suit. And this wasn't my, you know, we had other Americans who went over there who were like exercisers and, you know, in good shape. And to hear the guy like measuring my shoulders and measuring my back and like editorializing. So like he's measuring my hips and my buddy's like enormous posterior, right? <laughs> you know, super <laughs> wide shoulders. And he was just saying these things. I was like, 
what are you saying, dude? And it's so funny. Like they are so unaccustomed to like the American body shape. Even though I was fitted for a suit, I got a suit that didn't fit, even wow. though it was custom tailored because their assumptions about what a normal man looks like, it was very different from how we think about it as Americans. So that's another interesting experience, you know? Even after you've literally been tailored by, uh, or I should say objectified by your tailor. Um, yeah, I think that goes to show that's a, that's a cultural norm that you deviated from. And that's not anatomy. That's not physiology. That's that's our sort of uh, assumption uh, of what is usual. So, you know, what I would say is that recently, and obviously not fast enough for everybody, I think there has been more acknowledgement, even in the medical sure. establishment, that sure. there is a range of what we should consider healthy. And later in the show, we'll get into the actual definitions of overweight and obesity, which are actually very, very longstanding and frankly, kind of like body math. But I think what we're recognizing as, as docs even is that there's a range of body types that can be associated with good health. And to the extent that we want to kind of start putting value judgments on this can be celebrated. And, you know, uh, you know, one of the places I think where you see this most and where I've noticed it the most in terms of accepting that different body shapes and, you know, different measures of of what a normal body looks like is, is in mannequins at stores. So huh. I remember going to uh, like either Bloomingdale's or something, maybe not even Bloomingdale's or some other kind of store, but, you know, they had different size shape mannequins. So it wasn't just, you know, the mannequins weren't just the skinny minis. They were like, you know, more, much more full figured. Again, this was, you know, both on the men's side and the women's side. So it was very interesting to see how that's definitely coming to be more accepted in our in our culture. Yeah, that's fascinating. One of the uh, places I grew up in Scotland, one of the, the larger gentlemen on the island was called Big Angus. And, uh, <laughs> and he was appropriately named. But what was really funny is one of my relatives came over to visit us and went shopping for Big Angus at the Big and Tall store. And my Scottish relative was like very actually kind of meek, went up to the cashier and said, Oh, I'm looking for a belt, but you know, I have to warn you, he's rather a large gentleman. And she gave the measurements and the, and the, the salesperson just laughed um, and kind of showed the range that was available. And Big Angus was nowhere close uh, to, to the far end of what was available. So I, I always kind of smiled at that story. But um, you know, kind of the counterpoint to your mannequin example, JL, is that I think, and I realize I'm going to sound like kind of old man yells at cloud complaining about social media, <laughs> but you know, the visual aspects of social media and here I'm thinking sort of top of mind of Instagram are fascinating, right? For because sure. there's like two parts to sort of body dysmorphia, the notion that you're, you're perceiving your own body as imperfect or, or unhealthy uh, to, to a pathologic degree. And I know you're the mental health expert, not me, but the two aspects are number one, the Instagram models themselves um, mm -hmm. put themselves under such enormous pressure to be, you know, the platonic ideal that even tiny, tiny, tiny flaws get like amplified beyond belief. And then there are their followers who hold themselves to sometimes impossible standards. It's almost like everybody is making everyone else and themselves miserable through this constant and almost unachievable standard that gets perpetuated again through a, a literally visual medium like Instagram. And I don't know if you've caught any of uh, these examples on Instagram. There have been a, a number of posts, I think more on TikTok that I've seen about how people manipulate images in Instagram. I mean, there's like old school stuff like padding. So, you know, there's, there, you know, there are models who'll, who try to have a more full figured look, uh, you know, they'll put padding into various parts in their, in their front or in their back to accentuate different parts of their body. There's different things you can do with the digital manipulation mm -hmm. of the image to make your, your, your waist look thinner. Like I think Kim Kardashian has been 
caught doing that multiple multiple times. So it's often people are not just interacting with an ideal that they can't that would be challenging for them to achieve, but an ideal that doesn't even really exist. You know, is yes. is a manipulated image. So it's yes. it can be challenging. Yeah, it's sort of like you know buyer beware, and you know is is what you're looking at and aspiring to is that actually photoshopped, impossible to achieve. <laughs> um, so you know I, I think the other thing that you and I know as doctors, but I think we should make clear to the audience is like physiology is a lot more complicated than just how much you weigh, and in fact even there a body mass index, as we'll describe later, doesn't even consider. It, well, I should say it's not just about weight; it's also about height. And so it gets it gets much more complicated in the scale uh, right away. And then the part that I really struggle with is just seeing the impact this all has on people's self-esteem. You know, if you respect yourself, I actually think you're more likely to make healthy choices regardless of your size. And, and yet we actually see, uh, certainly I think fat shaming is real. I also think that um, skinny shaming, if that's an acceptable phrase, it, it also exists. And so, again, we know that statistically people are going to cluster around kind of the averages. And I, I think that needs to be reflected in, in the judgments uh, that are unfortunately being passed. I think we do what we can as doctors, but we're often battling a popular culture that has so much more power and so much more power through these various media to communicate hopefully healthy messages, but often not necessarily the most healthy messages. If you look at the statistics, we do have a pretty high rate of obesity in the United States or what people call overweight. And actually overweight is maybe a less less significant type of obesity. The stats show that 40% of Americans are uh, or American adults are obese and 70% are overweight. So the numbers are pretty significant and we'll delve into those a little further. But as you said, you know what? Your weight and certainly your BMI is not your full story. There are so many other things that you were dealing with in terms of your genetics, in terms of your diet, in terms of your exercise that can really impact how we think about obesity, certainly from the standpoint of your health. Right. So there's the cardiovascular aspect, of course, and then I'm sorry to harp on as, as a cancer doc, but it's actually crucial to my practice. So literally, every time I see a patient, the first vital sign I look at before pulse, blood pressure, temperature, oxygen saturation, the first thing I look at is their weight. Yeah. Because if I'm seeing someone in series, you know, two points make a line and multiple points, you know, make a make a pattern. And in my in my clinic, if your weight is stable or rising, that is generally a very, very good sign. Um, because the way I think about it is a pretty simple formula, actually. So all weight gain means that calories in exceed calories out. Right. Obviously, a form of calories out is the expenditure you get with exercise. But cancer is also a really sort of insidious way of, of losing calories, almost like a, a parasite consuming that from you. Mm -hmm. So when my patients start to even out or gain and there's other reasons, of course, like fluid retention, but by and large, it actually means that we're doing well. It also probably means I'm controlling their nausea, which I love to do. So it's it's really an interesting perspective that I've gained through oncology. And then the last thing I'll tell you, the first major research project I did as a fellow during my training was a study that actually showed patients with esophageal cancer. Uh, so obviously a, a really crucial organ for digestion. Um, sure. Some of them did better if they were heavier and what really kind of threw us for a loop is they seemed to do better if they were heavier and they had a history of smoking. And um, I actually shared this article with my mother when it came out. And she, she her comment to me was, um, if I'm reading this correctly, you, you found that it's good to be uh, obese and smoke? And I was like, well, not, not exactly. 
But I'll tell you what, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what I think it was, JL, at least on the uh, on the weight portion. I think that because we so profoundly change the route of digestion, the route of food intake in some of these patients, having some, I don't even know how to say this properly, but having some reserve, I guess, some energy reserve was actually protective once you entered the phase of treatment for this major organ, uh, the esophagus. So anyway, it's, it's just, it just goes to show you just how complex this all is. And any one person is kidding themselves if they look at another person, especially outside of a medical scenario, and, and judge their health solely on their weight, allowing for some extremes. And it's interesting, you know, now that you've gotten, you're talking about the clinical part, you know, as an addiction guy and as a mental health person, um, you know, weight is actually very, a very important signal for us because, you know, weight is often associated with use. And sometimes people who are using whatever substance that may be, uh, whether it's heroin or cocaine or whatever, will often have dramatic loss in weight and often end up getting like your, your, the compliments that you were talking about, you know, the compliment like, hey, you look great. You're six feet tall. You're 120 pounds. You look great. Uh, at the same time that, you know, their their health is really suffering. So, you know, even in the mental health world, uh, I can definitely say that weight is an important issue and a fraud issue because for a lot of people, like for, for instance, people who have a substance use disorder and an eating disorder, it can be very challenging uh, in terms of helping them to stabilize because sometimes the weight loss is a good thing. Sometimes it's not a good thing. So it, again, really depends on the person. Yeah, fascinating, again, to find the parallels between our practices and also the, the misplaced comments that our patients sometimes receive or compliments, I should say. So I think what we've established is the relationship between weight and health is complex. So what I think we should do, Jay, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll look at some of the more tangible measures of health. Sounds good. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. All right, so to answer our show's central title question, is it serious? Let's look at when someone's weight actually does cross into a danger zone and become a serious health issue. And I think one thing we have to establish, JL, is there's both a sort of semantic definition of obesity. And so here we get into the BMI, the body mass index. As with many other things in medicine, I think this is a term that has a lot of common um, awareness, one that resonates with folks without them actually thinking about the formula. It is a, a general measurement uh, of someone's weight versus their height. And so if you're below 18.5, that's considered underweight. And if you're considered, or if you're at, at or above 30, that's obese. What I found fascinating when I was looking into this is this is a calculation that dates back nearly two centuries and it was a Belgian mathematician, this is almost unbelievable, came up with this in the 1830s. He was trying to advise the government on how to allocate resources in regard to obesity. I actually don't think it's a, perhaps a surprise it was, it was Belgium because they're famously known for their, uh, their chocolate and other wonderful <laughs> indulgences. <laughs> but I think it just showed me that you know, we've taken this number because it's easily calculable on almost anybody who walks into our offices and steps in our scales. And I think we've perhaps 
you know, over-extrapolated from it. The reason that your doctor uses BMI is because it's really easy to capture that information. It's everybody's got a tape measure so we can get your height. So for me, my height in meters is 1.75 meters. And your weight is another thing that's really easy to get. So my weight is 84 kilograms. So my BMI is actually 27, which is interesting because I was a college athlete. I still train these days and I'm actually technically overweight because remember a, a, a overweight BMI is less than 30. Uh, greater than 25. So I'm sort of in that uh, overweight area, which is an interesting observation and, and, and hopefully a good signal to people that it's more than a number that we're interested in. Um, given my height to be considered underweight, I'd have to be under 124 pounds. So that's pretty skinny, but but I've seen, I've seen guys who can pull off, you know, at my height, skinny jeans at 124 pounds. I can't even get my calves into skinny jeans. Uh, and, and then to be obese is to be 203 pounds for me. And to be honest, during the pandemic, I got up to 201 pounds. I was still running every, you know, every other day I was lifting, but I got up to 201, which is actually the heaviest I've ever gotten in my life, which was actually at the margin of being obese. So it's fascinating. Again, if you're just looking at the number, you know, I'd see myself as an obese person, but actually, you know, I was actually still very healthy, just eating a little too much because the the refrigerator was only 10 feet away from my desk (laughs) during the pandemic. Yeah, it's interesting. Some of the stats that you cited earlier about like the percentage of Americans that are overweight versus obese, like those actually came from a survey that was pre-pandemic, like 2017, mm-hmm. 2018, the the before times. Um, mm-hmm. And the reason I bring that up is it's actually been an observation that just for the reasons you're stating, like during COVID, almost all of us have been more sedentary. I think it's fair to say we have been more adjacent, shall we say, to food sources. And I think there's been some stress eating. So this is an interesting time to be talking about this. But, you know, my real issue with with BMI JL is not only is it quite literally outdated, it also doesn't actually take into account body composition. So there's a tacit assumption that what's driving the weight here is fat. Uh, when in fact, you know, we also have to account for uh, bone and we have to account for muscle. Uh, both of which actually are significantly more dense uh, than fat. Um, it's also, as you might imagine, really, really bad at uh, capturing the health of athletes, of pregnant women, and of the elderly who are particularly uh, prone to changes in body composition. Yes, absolutely. So we do in cases where we're really interested in somebody's, their their level of obesity, there are other techniques that you can use. There's the DEXA scan, there's measuring, there's weighing people underwater. There are a whole bunch of other techniques that you can use to learn more information. And there are providers who do focus on that. So there's an opportunity there to learn more. But again, BMI is really, really sort of a crude tool that we use because it's easy. Uh, but now let's, let's talk about how common is obesity. You know, we've talked a, a little bit about it. As I said before, the prevalence of obesity. So prevalence, uh, break out a, a technical term, is sort of how common in the population is something, how prevalent it is. In the most recent research from 27-2018, of American adults qualified as meeting the obesity standard, again, using the BMI. So that's actually pretty high. Four mm-hmm. out of 10 people, even if we're overreading um, and it's only really three out of 10, that's still a pretty significant percentage of the population that is overweight, that is obese. What I thought was really interesting looking at the data Mark, was that if you look at 1999 to uh, 2000 data, so less than 20 years ago, that obesity rate was only 30.5%. Wow. So there has been a big change
change in just 15 or 20 years. And again, you know, we were talking about it before and you alluded to it before. I think part of it is processed foods and the type of foods that we eat. Um, you know, certainly having what I like to call the abundance of food. You know, my parents come from the developed world. When I when I was in the house, I realized now, like our our, our cupboards were basically bare and, yeah. you know, like we, di- we, we just didn't eat, you know, and if you wanted a snack, you had an apple, you had an orange. So I think culturally, the abundance of food is a big deal. And then I think obviously sedentary lifestyle as we've moved away from factories, as we've moved away from farms to sitting at our desks and typing on computers, you know, we just live a sedentary lifestyle. And I don't know, Mark, if you ever saw this study in medical school, but I remember there was a a Swedish lumberjack study where they looked (laughs) at the caloric uh, expenditure of the average Swedish lumberjack, and they were expending something like 7,000 calories per day, right? So So the guys were just like literally eating whole buttermilk, fat, lard. It didn't matter because they use so many calories in a day. But if you sit at your desk all day and you know you don't do that much exercise, your calorie needs are maybe like 2,000, 2,500, depending on how big you are. So it's interesting as we've moved to this more sedentary lifestyle, how much it really sets us up for gaining weight and you know developing obesity. It's the Michael Phelps diet, right? The guy's housing pizzas, but has a six pack and is a cabinet <laughs> full of gold medals. It's all about how you expand the calories as well. That's well yeah. said. And you know, without even being silly, like both in our jobs and in our personal lives, I think there's less and less of a focus on physical activity. Like there's actually a prompt, I'm sure you've seen it many times on Netflix that asks you if you're still there. Um, you know, if you, if you haven't you haven't clearly moved in some period of time. The app, you know, prompts you, and uh, I think that you know the, the reason that's there is it, it this availability of you know bingeable digital content. I'm not even being glib is actually again a reason to sit and, and not move. And I think you know among the many other factors that have increased you know obesity in the last in two decades. And I think in that period of time, I think you know severe what we sometimes call morbid obesity has actually doubled. So if obesity is a BMI above 30, I believe that's a cutoff above 40. And again, we, we keep saying that's not a perfect number, but you know, yes. it's what we can measure. It's what we can measure in a, a large, large number of the population. And, and ergo, these data actually are useful. Uh, again, obesity is not a monolithic thing. It's just not what, there are many different aspects to this in terms of how does obesity relate to other aspects such as your health. So for instance, we know that women generally carry more fat than men. Women have a higher body fat content, but women, as every actuarial table will show you, have significantly longer longevity than than men do, right? Yep. Um, so that's that clearly shows that there are other factors at play other than just your weight. There's also interesting evidence or research that shows that obesity tends to impact selected ethnic groups in different ways. So actually, African-American populations have a, a higher optimal BMI in terms of longevity than European-American populations do. So that's another interesting thing that depending on where you're from could impact what is a normal BMI and what is a normal fat distribution or fat content for your body. And then finally, there's different ways to carry fat in your body. So, you know, again, there's abdominal obesity where you're sort of fat around the middle is different yes. from being more evenly distributed in terms of your fat. Uh, and actually the abdominal obesity carries a higher risk. So that's uh, an interesting way of saying that fat is not fat, obesity is not obesity, and it varies depending on the circumstance. 
Yeah, it's interesting. So, of course, we have a medical term for that, right? So, that's central adiposity is our fancy way of doing it. <laughs> that was drilled into me when I was a resident and I had a clinic every week. One of my attendings, one of the docs that was teaching me, had me bring a tape measure because he wasn't just interested. It's actually back to like your tailor. He wasn't just mm -hmm. interested in height or weight. He wanted to know abdominal circumference. And he absolutely insisted that we provide that data point because he was like, this is how you're going to figure out who is at the highest risk for diabetes, high blood pressure, and awful things happening to their heart and their peripheral blood vessels. And I just thought that was so telling. And it was such a simple tool, but it added that one other element that really changed our perception of patients' risk. You know, the other factors at play, and, and I'll certainly talk about this later too, are, are genetics. So it, this is almost exclusively out of our control. And I see all the time patients beat themselves up for factors that they, they just possibly can't change. And this includes, and I think this is well known, you know, some patients are prone to high cholesterol. Yep. You know, this, this tends to run in families. Again, the jargon is familial hypercholesterolemia. There's, I think, at least five different types. But the point being is that you could do everything you can to be a healthy person and you can actually still have a high cholesterol. And even then yep. there's different types of cholesterol. I think people know that we sort of fractionate, we break it down into the LDL, which often gets labeled as the bad cholesterol and HDL, which gets labeled as the good kind. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in addition to your genes, you know, your exercise and fitness play a huge role. And there's lots of evidence to show that even if you're carrying a few extra pounds, as long as you're exercising and you're very fit, you can actually have a nor totally normal cardiovascular profile. So, you know, that exercise piece is very, very important. And as I told you myself, you know, I was running 5K races. I had a BMI 27, 28, 29, but I'm still running, you know, 5Ks in under 23 minutes. So you can be in good shape and that can really be a protective role. Same thing with your diet. You know, as long as you're focused on the diet of natural foods, unprocessed foods, that can also be very, very protective, even if you have a couple of extra pounds that you're carrying. Yeah, and I'm glad you say that because I already know that the counterpoint to our whole discussion is people will say, oh, you're letting everybody off the hook. You know, people are going to abdicate responsibility for what they put in their mouth. Like, no, that's not what we're saying either. But really, I think it's it's about going beyond weight, right? So where someone should be concerned to me is far beyond aesthetics. Don't get me wrong. I understand self-image matters, but you know, it's where are we actually harming the body, you know, where are we getting into difficulties with, with mobility? And it's like you said, JL, it's a vicious cycle. Your know, bodies in motion tend to stay in motion. In almost every physiologic way, inertia can be deadly. I think it's these associated risks that people need to be taking more seriously and not just the number they get when they step on the scale. So, Jay, I'm just curious to ask you, you know, from your perspective and your expertise, like what's the connection between you know mental health and weight? Our Practice focuses a lot on addiction, but we also do a fair amount of primary mental health as well. So, you know, we see a lot of people with anxiety and depression, and there's no question that the two are interlinked. Anxiety and depression can cause people to gain weight, can cause people to lose weight as well. The flip side occurs uh, where people who gain weight can then become anxious and depressed. So there is a very tight bond between your actual weight, your perceptions of weight, and your mental health. In terms of substance use disorders and eating disorders, there's a lot of overlap between the two, and they can be very, very challenging situations to manage and actually require very specialized care. So there's no question that obesity, perceptions of obesity really impact people's mental health. And I think in many ways is a completely overlooked concept in medicine and, uh, and how we take care of patients. Not to overcomplicate things, but I think it's important to point out some of the times the things that we prescribe 
also affect weight, right? Is Absolutely. it fair to say, or, or is it painting with too broad a brush? You know, some, maybe many antidepressants can actually cause weight gain. Is that a fair? Antidepressants, prob- probably the more antipsychotics are better known mm-hmm. for doing this. But I mean, some of these antipsychotic medications can cause dramatic weight gain, you know, 20, 30 kilo weight gain, and can often be a real limit, uh, limiting factor for patients who would otherwise benefit from the medication, but because they gain so much weight and because it has such an impact on them psychologically that they say, you know, I'd rather not take this medication to at least get back to a normal weight. So it can be very challenging. And you're totally right. There are medications that we give people that uh, sort of impact them uh, from the standpoint of having them gain weight. So ultimately, we want everybody listening to this to feel great inside and out, mentally, emotionally, physically. And it's sort of like the serenity prayer where I think it's important to know what's under your control, you know? So to take care of your whole self, like like you said, Jail, there's, there's almost no prescription better than exercise. Like I think if exercise was a pill, it'd be worth trillions of dollars. Uh, just, <laughs> right? Like staying in motion is incredibly powerful. Uh, and, and I think it's actually a, a reinforcing feedback loop where you feel better about yourself the more you move. You still can eat mindfully and, you know, trying to minimize stress. You know, one thing we'd even kind of scratch the surface of is that stress in and of itself and the hormones associated with stress also cause fat deposition in certain areas. Do you mind just kind of taking us out before we go with a mental health minute? Our goal, Mark, and we talked about this and we've talked about this throughout the the time that we've been working together. Our goal is really to be upbeat. That's what we want our signature to be. But I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the impact that the last two years have had on us emotionally, mentally, spiritually. And that's at the individual level and at the community level. And, you know, it's been challenging for me, for sure. You know, I'm happily married for many years. And I I realize, like, when I'm arguing with my wife about the toilet paper, like, there's something, something's wrong there. Something, something's going wrong. Um, So, you know, suggestions that, we always have as physicians, um, and certainly somebody as a mental health person, is first, talk about your feelings. There is something inherently therapeutic about just talking, externalizing what's going on inside and really not trapping those feelings inside. Venting the way you feel can be dramatic. And, you know, we often talk in my business, uh, my practice, with families that are dealing with tremendous stress related to substance use problems. And it is amazing how often when we have that first call with them and they can let go for 20 minutes about how they feel, they always say, you know what? I feel a lot better after just being able to get that out. So I think that's a very important thing. I think engaging your friends and your network of people who are around you who are dealing with the same issue, and you can often find out that they're dealing with the same issue, uh, can be very powerful. And then finally, engaging a professional if you're struggling, and even if you're not a struggling, whether it's a, a therapist, a coach, if you're religious, if it's a priest or a rabbi, um, there's always somebody to talk to and to approach. And a lot of this stuff, fortunately, is covered by insurance now uh, to help you get through these challenging times. So, you know, you're not alone. It's been a challenging two years and uh, there are a lot of resources out there to help. Oh, thanks for saying that, Bill. And we really appreciate what you do to bolster you know, the mental health of our patients and, and of our audience. So before we go, I want to brighten your day, not with a mean tweet, but with a mean internet comment. <laughs> <laughs> now I'll stay, talk, talk about a health warning. Everybody knows you should never, ever read the comment section. It's like the deep, dark part of the internet. There's really nothing good down there. But I did have an interesting one that dovetails perfectly with this episode. So as we'll discuss another time, I actually diagnosed myself with cancer when I was 30. And the only thing you have to know for this segment is it was absolutely unquestionably caused by a genetic mutation. There was literally nothing I could do to change it. And so I shared online that I had this diagnosis as a 30-year-old. And I'm going to read you verbatim the, the response I got, okay? Stop eating fake foods like bacon double cheeseburgers, french fries, <laughs> and milkshakes. 
Eat more fresh salads with skinless chicken and no dressing. This is getting very specific. <laughs> Wash the salads down with some green tea. You'll be just fine in a few days. That is for <laughs> a, a, a part of me, like a part of my DNA that I literally cannot change if I wanted to. And it just goes to show you that other people want to sort of imprint their dietary advice upon you. And they think it can fix everything. And I was just so stunned. I guess I shouldn't be you know, on the internet, but some stranger thinks that this is the prescription to fix my very, very broken genes. I just thought it was both <laughs> insightful, hilarious, and a little bit sad. That's so funny. And one thing I'd say uh, as the in terms of unsolicited diet advice, as you may remember, I was infected with uh, COVID early in the pandemic and I was actually interviewed on ABC News. So I was on the nightly news. And just to give you an idea of like the power of television, I had random people calling me who somehow found my phone number. It's not like I gave my phone number in the news story. <laughs> people were like looking for me online and then calling me and giving me diet advice. There was this lady who was calling from Florida who gave me very detailed uh uh, a prescription for taking aloe vera to deal with my viral infection. It's crazy, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that delicious, delicious aloe vera. Yes. Well, Jay, I think that's all we had for today. And we want to thank the audience for listening. We would love to hear from them. Why don't you uh, tell them your contact info? Not your phone number. Sure. Not my phone number. So you can always find me on LinkedIn. I'm very active there. And you can also find me on Twitter, which is at Jean-Luc Neptune, J-E-A-N-L-U-C-N-E-P-T-U-N-E. And yourself, Mark? You sound so sophisticated saying that. I am so boring. I am at Mark Lewis, MD, just like it sounds, M-A-R-K-L-E-W-I-S-M-D. If you have a medical question uh, or would like clarification about something medical, you can ask us. Uh, again, we're not going to give you specific, direct, professional medical counsel, but you can also call us um, at Offscript Health and leave a message. We might just use your question on the show. Our number is 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666, not JL's phone number. <laughs> and Mark, you know, while we love talking about medicine, we could sit here, we could talk all day, and we love healthcare. Remember that this is a show that doesn't provide medical advice. If you have questions, make sure to ask your doctor. That's right. So take care of your body, everybody. Please join us next time for Is It Serious? That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all of your friends to listen. Do you have a medical question or concern? Ask us by leaving a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Or you can email us at isitserious at offscript.com. And we might just use your question in a future show. Is It Serious is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Our hosts are Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune and Dr. Mark Lewis. Our researcher is Emma Gomez and our sound mixer is Kyle Moore. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. <laughs>